Hello everyone, it's August 4th, 2020. This week it's all about Mars 2020. It was a successful launch and the return of Dragon Endeavor and her crew. It was a successful splashdown. Nothing like a show packed with things going well in the world of spaceflight. Okay, let's do it and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 271 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. And this week is no Ben, because he's moving, uh, as he said last week. So he's somewhere in the Midwest or wherever. I have no idea. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly where on his, his path he's, he is right now, but he's, he's currently cooking across country. Trekking across the country, which is a, a nice time of year to be doing that. I think it's, you know, I guess it's not fall, but still, you know, whatever. Yeah. I think he was talking about whether or not he wanted to do a, a more southerly route or a northerly route. Uh, the one might have been a little faster, while the other one, you know, would have been not having to drive through this the southern summer, right? The, the summer in the south is can be a little rough, you know, even if oh, yeah. it's only when you run out of the car to get gas or something, that's still unpleasant. <laughs> it's hot, but I'm kind of used to it because I've grown up in the south, although I've noticed yeah. it, it is definitely worse in Florida. The rest of the south I've noticed is still really hot and still humid, but not quite as bad. And I thought that it was because I'd grown up in, in North Carolina, which I remember, you know, the summers there being very hot as well. But since that time, like having come back a little bit further north, it's not as bad. Like it can be like almost 100 degrees out and it still doesn't feel as hot as even like 85 degrees in Florida. Um, So (laughs) that's just that's just what humidity does. People usually, you know, bust Arizonans chops about, oh, right, it's a dry heat, you know, at least in Mm -hmm. southern central Arizona. And it really is a difference. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the flip side of that coin is that it'll be over 100 degrees for like 40 days in a row, which does get a little draining and tiring after a while. That's crazy. Like, I, I hope the dry heat helps because I've never it had does. to, I've, I've never had to contend <laughs> with that over a hundred degrees for 40 days straight. Like, wow. Yeah. That's, that's when I, you know, stop exercising outdoors and kind of, <laughs> actually I always put on weight every summer because mm-hmm. of that specifically. <laughs> that's weird. Isn't it usually the other way around? Like people put on like it winter usually, weight. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. not in Arizona, no, you put on weight because nobody goes outside, it's just too damn hot. Yeah. Some people might be willing to go out and like melt it off, but I, I don't. I just hide inside all day. Yeah, the big story in the news is the Mars Perseverance and the Ingenuity launch on the Mars 2020 mission. Yeah, that went well. So we had talked last week about actually watching it live, and I totally forgot to set my alarm, so I missed it. <laughs> I don't know about you, uh, but I didn't catch I, it. Yeah, I, I usually um, – I'm on Twitter often enough, I think, that I'll notice launches that I'm not prepared for, you know, maybe an hour out or even like 10 minutes out. But this one completely – caught me off guard and i only like saw like the hey it was a successful launch like an hour afterwards i guess it was just it was just so early i guess for me and i hadn't for some reason i just did not hear about it the day before any of the days you know leading up to it like it it really snuck up on me i had heard about it the day before and and in fact like Mm -hmm. i was completely aware of it that evening and i was like okay before i go to bed i have to set my alarm and i just didn't Ah. i just forgot i just forgot to do it and then i woke up i don't know like an hour or two later and I was just like well crap Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was good to see you know because like the first thing that you do like in an event like that is that you check Twitter you know just kind of furiously because you just want to know if everything went well so that was the first thing Mm -hmm. I did and sure enough it went well and I was like okay cool so I can breathe now Um, but yeah so um, I guess let's let's talk about some of the details here so this lifted off on an Atlas V rocket in the 541 configuration which as we had mentioned last week means that you have that 5 meter fairing I believe that's what the 5 stands for and then you had Mm -hmm. 4 
solid rocket boosters. And this thing took off, as they say, it's like a bat out of hell. Um, I think yeah. it left the tower in like under three seconds or thereabouts. Um, it, oh, wow. Yeah, it had a <laughs> lot of boosters. Or I think it was like right around the three-second mark, actually. But um, yeah, I mean, that's a fast accelerating rocket. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard Tori Bruno's nickname for it, the Dominator, that configuration specifically. There you go, yeah. <laughs> which which makes sense. I mean, that thing, that thing really was cooking. <laughs> just, I mean... I didn't see it, but I just like heard like the stats. Like I think it went, to, it reached max Q in just about thirty seconds. Yeah, that's what you need, I guess, if if you're gonna lift and throw something all the way to Mars. You know, as yeah, as a straight shot. It definitely had to do, I believe, in engine relight, so it wasn't you know one continual yeah. boost. Yeah, sorry, uh, it's the shot. Once it leaves Earth, it's it's a straight shot to Mars, as opposed to it's not. Gonna oh, I see what you're saying. Break yeah, around yeah. or and go into orbit around Mars and then descend. Right. It's gonna just. It's heading to the red planet physically right yep. now. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, good right. old, uh, right. So I guess this is just a old fashioned Hohmann transfer. Well, I mean, a Hohmann transfer, right? That puts you in orbit around the other object too, right? Or at least it, it still has you in a closed orbit that then kind of lets you then basically burn at the, what is now your apogee, but is going to be your para. Arian, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's that kind of swap. I think this is just a straight up hyperbolic orbit. That it's just like firing a bullet at Mars, essentially. And it's just going to intersect the planet itself. The way Colin put it, the periarian is underground. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and, and, and so, you know, it's, it's going to do this, you know, straight shot head in there now. They've got the, uh, the supersonic parachute and they basically are going to make some last minute, uh, uh or the parachute's going to be able to make some last minute call on whether it looks like it's more likely to overshoot or undershoot the target and then deploy a little uh, later or earlier, depending on the situation. One interesting thing that happened was it, it had a little bit of an off-nominal temperature reading because it had gone into the Earth's shadow and the temperature dropped. And uh, I'm not sure what that temperature range is, but um, it wasn't a big deal because, you know, it had like later passed on into sunlight. And from this point forward, it will be in the sun. So it's not, you know, it's not mm -hmm. an issue. But um, I thought that was kind of interesting because I didn't know it could get that cold that quickly. Yeah. And, and, and I didn't see any numbers either, but this was something that you know didn't happen with curiosity the last rover but evidently you know they they kind of know that you know if it drops below or it's a temperature is different from kind of expectations by a certain amount that's kind of when it gets flagged to go into safe mode and they chose that difference to be conservative which i guess is to say a, a smaller difference um so it'd be more likely to go into safe mode when it doesn't need to than to not go into safe mode when it really ought to. And so uh, they kind of knew that. They weren't scared or anything. Uh, safe mode, you know, doesn't mean that, you know, it shuts down. It just means that it basically turns off all the, you know, I mean, it's safe mode, right? You, you still have the, mm -hmm, yeah. the, the core functioning processes happening, you know, what it needs, but yeah. And so is it going to be turned back on, I, th I think not until quite a bit later? So Stai's saying it's already back, Okay. but maybe you're thinking, um, I don't know, do, on a Mars mission, do they put it in a hybrid? Like maybe hibernating isn't the right word for that. That might mean something more specific, like when you really shut down systems. I mean, it's not going to be doing much, you know, no. this way from here to there. <laughs> the coast phase. There you go. I'm sure, I'm sure they're going to want to keep tabs on all the kind of, you know, core systems, even during the coast phase. This is a very expensive, very ambitious mission. And so even if, you know, even if it's a, um, I don't know what, a quieter part of the the whole mission, you know what I mean? A mm -hmm. more relaxing part of the whole mission, you know, you still are going to want some basic information about what's going on. It's basic telemetry. 
Yep. And uh, speaking of telemetry, the other issue that they had was um, with uh, communicating with the DSN. So apparently the spacecraft had saturated the ground reception stations. And this was with the data stream. And that was basically interfering with some other data coming up, which I believe uh, had to do with telemetry. Yeah. uh, Stice was talking about one of the issues to remedy uh, the saturation was just realigning the antenna so that maybe you're just off and so you're not getting the full beam Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe coming from the spacecraft, so you're, I mean, right, you're, so you're not saturating it as much anymore. That makes yep. sense. But uh, anyway, things did go well, so no real problems. Uh, so it is now in its coast phase. Uh, it will be touching down in a Jezero crater in February of next year. So that's not too far off, considering how fast time passes. Like, we'll be talking about this soon enough anyway. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I did it all the time. It's like, didn't we talk about that like a month ago? And then we checked yeah. the notes, and it's like, yeah, we did, you know. Last year. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So there's a little side experiment that they have on here, which is called Sherlock. I was not aware of this I thought this was brilliant. So when I I saw this, I I, I wanted to talk about it a bit. But yeah, so the Sherlock, which is a a Raman uh, spectroscopy instrument, so shines UV light on it. Um, Based on how the light scatters, you can tell, you know, what you're looking at, right? The, The composition. And so you need to calibrate it. And so they wanted to bring, like, you know, a piece of Teflon, which gives a certain, you know... UV signature. They wanted to bring a, 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 a rock, you know, of some particular, you know, composition, you know, so that way they just know every couple, I don't know, months or so to go and look at this calibration target that's on the rover itself. Because Sherlock is on the arm. So it's, you know, it's one of the instruments that'll be on that arm that can get extended and pointed at different things. And um, they realized like they could just rather than just bring these targets purely as uh, calibrators, maybe you could, you know, get some use out of that. And so, you know, there's, uh, there's 10 little disks essentially that have the calibrators, two rows with five in a row. And the top row has two sapphire disks, two pieces of silica glass. And then instead of just bringing a regular old rock, I guess they wanted to, they figured they'd bring a Martian meteorite. So this is a piece of Mars that fell to earth, was collected here on earth and is now being returned to yeah. Mars <laughs> as a, not local, but local kind of <laughs> sample they could use to calibrate it. This feels like a like one day in the future, a future of this week in spaceflight history, and the clue will be something like, "Hey, you drop this." You know, I don't know if oh. that just popped in, into my head. That's a good one, that's, huh? That's good. Let's <laughs> keep that in our back pocket for uh, our twenty thirty episodes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's half of the targets, and then the other half, right? Instead of just like grabbing Teflon, you know, people are very much interested in you know different materials for spacesuits. And why not get, you know, why not take this opportunity to see, you know, how these materials handle a Martian environment? And so uh, the bottom row are five different spacesuit materials, essentially. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, here, let me let me look them up. Uh, there's going to be uh, some polycarbonate, some Vectran, some orthofabric, uh, some Teflon and some coated Teflon. And the idea is that these might correspond to different parts of, you know, a, a, a Martian or, you know, just a general, you know, spacesuit that, you know, could you know be useful on the moon, say, too. So polycarbonate for maybe your visor, Vectran and the gloves, it looks like, uh, you know, the orthofabric and some of the limbs of your suit. And so I thought, I just thought that was a great idea because, you know, you don't get too many opportunities to test stuff on the Martian surface. And so if you can, you know, uh, uh, leverage, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you could make it do more than one job, you know, if you get more than one use out of uh, something, then, you know, go and do that. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I think, I mean, we've sent many things to Mars, but that's to, you know, collect <laughs> samples from Mars or whatever, or make readings there, but not to see how stuff that we build functions, you know, there. So, mm-hmm. uh, 
yeah, that's a cool difference. It, and as Anderson put it, you have only one opportunity. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good pun. Ben would be curious. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, somewhere so he just sneezed in his car wherever yeah. he is right now so the other big news which is actually unfolding as we record this so we can't really comment on its success is the crew dragon return it's in orbit it's coming back in mm-hmm. two hours like roughly almost exactly two hours from now right yeah i was gonna say a little before noon my time yeah which i guess is early afternoon your time yeah so we have a couple more hours but so far things are looking good i don't anticipate any problems um and certainly the crew don't anticipate any problems they seem to be very confident about all this. So last night they were doing a NASA live stream and a SpaceX live stream of the whole thing, the departure and everything, which which mostly was them talking about it because it didn't actually happen until, you know, like later on in the day. So what I guess we can do is just kind of go down a little bullet list here of, you know, exactly how the events will proceed. And certain ones have already taken place. So the Crew Dragon or Endeavor, it has already left station. It had undocked from the Harmony module at 7.35 p.m. yesterday, which would be Saturday night. And then it is going to spend 19 hours in orbit, which I believe is the same as the amount of time that it spent in orbit before docking, right? It was like a little bit less than a day. It was like 19, 20 hours, I believe. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. So like roughly 19 hours and then it'll be coming back down at 2.48 Eastern time. So yeah, just a couple hours from now. So what's remaining is um, trunk separation because that is still attached and then that will happen at 1.51 and then just five minutes later, that's when they fired the forward bulkhead thrusters for the actual deorbit burn. Uh, okay. So that trunk is going to stay in orbit for about you know a year or so. And then once they fire those forward bulkhead thrusters, that's when they will close the nose cone because um, you know the thrusters actually sit like underneath that nose cone um, and they're just adjacent to the docking hatch and all that so obviously that has to be protected so once they actually do the burn then they can close the nose cone mm-hmm. important sequence of events there uh, and then it will uh, splash down off the coast of Pensacola and it had a backup of Panama City which I guess is you know far enough away I mean they're not too far from one another but I guess you know conditions can be different enough or maybe there's something else that could be a problem I'm not sure what isn't the real issue right now that you know there's a hurricane on the east coast of Florida or not maybe it's not off the east coast yet but it's it's heading that direction I think it's like in the Bahamas right now if that's the case I don't know first of all I don't know how much of a difference there would be between those two locations but also Panama City is actually closer to the hurricane than Pensacola so if they were to use their backup I don't know why the backup it seems like they would want to touch down somewhere further away as a non-Floridian though these are all on the Gulf side, right? Yeah. So like Pensacola is about as far west as you can go. And then you have Panama City, which is a little bit further east. So Pensacola is like right next to Biloxi, I believe, or pretty close. So I'm guessing that, you know, it was just a standard backup splashdown zone and it didn't have anything to do with the hurricane. But if the hurricane had become an issue, then... I'm guessing they would have, and, and I believe this is the case, they would have just had to remain at station for, you know, a couple of days or whatever before they can come mm. back. I think yeah, that I that's s- the case. I saw they had basically, uh, like, Dragon can spend ultimately, uh, cumulatively, like a full week in orbit. Right, and so, yeah. like you said, they burned off less than a day on day one, mm-hmm. and so they kind of have, you know, about a week. <laughs> yeah. And so the, 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 the timing isn't that terrifying. Oh, it's <laughs> a uh, good, uh, good burn, good correction burn here. Uh, the dragon can spend a lot longer, but uh, Bob and Doug less so. So fair enough. <laughs> the uh, effective lifetime, I'll say. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I think that they had a whole bunch of different sites originally, like like half a dozen or so. 
And that included, you know, Gulf and Atlantic Ocean mm -hmm. sites. And I think the hurricane just kind of erased, you know, using oh, all of those okay. uh, uh, Atlantic sites. And so maybe, I mean, it, right, you said Pensacola is as far west, mm -hmm. like along that panhandle you can get. Yeah. Or is that the panhandle? That part? Yeah. Yeah. And so then that, you know, that be consistent with, you know. Try to stay further away from yeah Hurricane Isaiah's I think it's called Isaiah's I think yeah mm. yeah that actually makes sense and that also perhaps that's the reason why they're splashing down in the Gulf in the first place because this is actually the first time that any capsule or at least any capsule with crew will be coming back down in the Gulf of Mexico because yeah normally mm. I mean it's it's either off the coast of California or it's off you know the Atlantic coast but um, in the Gulf not so much and it seems actually it seems kind of like a better idea to me just because, you know, the Gulf is generally pretty serene. Like you don't have the big waves mm. that you do out in the Atlantic. So I'm not sure why they don't always do that. Apart from the fact that obviously it's much easier to get back to Kennedy Space Center because it's right mm. there. But, you know, whatever. Well, maybe maybe in Apollo era, their landing was in his... I mean, some of them hit the landing pretty darn accurately, I know. Mm. Um, but I don't know. That's a speculation. Cause those all dropped in the Pacific, right? Uh, I don't remember. Ones? I think so. I think so. I feel like they were getting like scooped up and brought to Hawaii and things like that. <laughs> but I mean, like, like for the first time, sending humans, you know, back to Earth, I guess, you know, dropping them off in the Pacific would make. Mm -hmm. If I was yeah. cautious, I would <laughs> want to do that. But that makes sense. And and I looked at a map of the the splashdown sites, and it seems. I mean, I realize you know it's still very different. It's still far enough from the coast to be safe and everything, but it seems closer to the coast than I would have, you know, naively guessed a splashdown site would be. I don't know if that's just me. You know, it looks pretty close. Yeah, like like if you look on a map, yeah, it looks close to shore. And then they'll be scooped up shortly after that, probably within, I think, less than an hour by a Go, what's it called? Go Explorer or Go something? Go Navigator. Yeah, Go Navigator. There you go. And Go Searcher. That's the other one. Yep. So an interesting historical fact is that this is the first time the crew, or at least American crew, is splashing down in a capsule since 1976, which actually mm. I, thought was, I thought it was 1975 that I'd read, but I guess 1976. So yeah, that was during the Apollo-Soyuz test project, which we had talked about not too long ago. Um, but yeah, that was the last time. Like It has been a long time since people in a capsule splashed down in the ocean. And this is the first time that they're coming down in the Gulf of Mexico. So mm -hmm. a couple of firsts here. And by the way, your instinct was good. That was 75. Okay, 1975. Okay, yeah. Correction, 1975. All right. And they're having to contend with seasickness because that'll be you know a real problem when you're bobbing up and down in the ocean, especially after you know spending months in orbit and you know, you've been in zero G and now you're under gravity and you're moving. I mean, I just can't imagine things being worse, which by the way, an interesting side story, the only time that I've ever been seasick happened in the Gulf of Mexico. So uh, uh -oh. that doesn't <laughs> well and i'm not sure why but i just got really seasick i was on my uncle's boat and we were off the coast of like fort myers i think somewhere around there yeah yeah fingers crossed for him i think yeah i saw Bankin had a pretty good line that he was you know expecting to see you know that it, it might they might very well be seeing their breakfast twice Let's do three short and sweets this week. What's our first one, Dennis? Well, first up, Airbus to build Mars Sample Return Mission's orbital element. ESA has recently announced plans to award Airbus Defense and Space of France a contract to build the Earth Return Orbiter as part of the Mars Sample Return Mission. The orbiter will have solar panels that give it a 35-meter wingspan and will weigh 6.5 metric tons. 
The UK division of Airbus has previously been awarded study contracts for the mission's fetch rover, which will reach the Martian surface via a NASA-led lander, collect the samples, and return them to a NASA-led ascent vehicle. The overall cost of the mission is expected to reach $7 billion. Next up, a cause of Rocket Lab's recent launch failure has been identified, so we have some answers now. Mm. A detached electrical connector was responsible for the anomaly that resulted in Rocket Lab's July 4th launch failing to reach orbit and destroying all seven small commercial satellites on board. With battery power no longer reaching the turbo pump in the second stage Rutherford engine, the rocket safely shut down prematurely five and a half minutes after takeoff and coasted to an altitude of 195 kilometers or 121 miles before burning up on re-entry. This is the first launch failure for the company since entering commercial service, but engineers are confident no design changes are required and improved testing should catch similar problems in the future. Yeah, and I gotta say, it sounds like they did a, a good job about like you know communicating with you know their customers and other customers as well as you know the government yeah. bodies that they needed to to kind of handle this the right way and uh finally hayabusa 2 releases details on its extended mission so Hayabusa 2, which has been on its second and final ion firing operation since May during its return to Earth, now has two targets for a potential extended mission. After releasing the capsule containing samples of asteroid Ryugu later this year, the spacecraft will perform TCM-5 to leave Earth orbit and head to either 2001 AV-43 or 1998 KY-26, two small rapidly rotating asteroids on orbits reachable in 2029 or 2031 respectively. If successful, Hayabusa 2 would be the first spacecraft to explore asteroids of this kind. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, mostly comments and correction burns. Um, <laughs> we have several comments from Andrew and one comment from Alex. Yeah, so this is about just various little things because we've, we've been getting like, I don't know, well, we've gotten quite a few emails this week about various things. And so I guess we could like, you know, we're just going to sum it all up in this quick little segment here. Yeah, it was, it was just a cool mixed bag. And so I feel like we should just share these links, you know, in the show notes. And anybody that wants to, you know, we, we spent a lot of the time talking about the kind of south uh uh, lunar pole um, ecosystem, right, that Artemis really wants mm -hmm. to develop. And so uh, part of that uh, might include a nuclear reactor. In just a number of years, they kind of have a very ambitious timeline of getting a uh, fairly, you know, small, you know, it's not going to output that much, but the idea is to use nuclear power uh, on the moon uh, to help us out here. Is this more like an RTG type of a thing, or is this like an actual nuclear reactor? I always thought that just the differences in RTG is just a, a small one that you're I suppose using so, to, yeah. to generate you know, heat and electricity specifically. It's the same physical principle, right? Yeah, but I mean, like if you like if you need like shields and you know like waters and insulator mm -hmm. and stuff like that, then I, I tend to think of it being more like an actual like nuclear power station. But I and I don't know if it's going to be that ambitious because wow, that's. But I suppose you could do a much smaller version of that. Yeah, I guess I guess I guess it's more like the latter then because they they keep calling it a reactor. So I'm kind of you know envisioning kind of a scaled down uh, reactor. True. Uh, can't yeah. weigh more than seven thousand seven hundred pounds or. 3,500 uh, kilograms. Wow. Well, so. that is a very small little reactor, but... Right. Yeah. And that's why the, the power output is not, you know, it's not going to power uh, yeah. a U.S. A <laughs> home, for example. <laughs> and then uh, there was just a lot of great, you know, um, documents that Andrew shared with us about winged Gemini, or sorry, winged Gemini. And um, it's just such a cool idea, uh, some of the things that they thought about using 
uh, Gemini 4 that ended up not making it. Like Big Gemini, that was something I only actually encountered recently. Are you familiar with Big Gemini? No, I'm not. What is this Big would have Gemini? been like a, like, I think they could fit like a dozen people in there, they were thinking. Basically just, you know. Oh, cool. It's, it's just a Big Gemini. <laughs> so, I mean, like... Yeah, so... Um, Says it on the tin, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, this winged version, though, um, it, it, the documents are pretty cool. I haven't finished them yet, but like they're manageable reads because sometimes you can get ones that are like 300 pages and it's just like, oh, geez, that's a lot. Uh, but these ones, I think uh, you really could just kind of sit down and go through, and that's what I plan on doing. So just wanted to share those. And then Alex uh, also contributed an interesting article and just kind of a question that I kind of wanted to float to you and maybe, you know, our Discord. Um, he, he had seen um, uh, an article about, you know, a new spaceport being proposed to be built in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, right, aren't there like just like a ton, like a surprisingly large number of spaceports kind of scattered throughout the U.S. that just you just don't realize are there, you know, even if they are in kind of seemingly strange states, because I mean, you know, Michigan, you know, it's high latitude, but it's also, you know, very snowy. You know, it doesn't have the best weather necessarily. I'm not sure why there would be one put there, but then again, there's one in Alaska. So yeah. <laughs> that's, that's definitely snowy. Mm, that is <laughs> and true. It seems manageable. So for, for all the spaceports, I mean, there does seem to be more than you'd think, but I mean, a lot of them are, are either like suborbital or they're currently under development. So they're not quite there yet, but it, it does seem mm -hmm. like I'm always hearing about a new spaceport somewhere. So there's certainly more than people know. I mean, most people are mm -hmm. not even aware of wallops. Um, and most people don't think about Vandenberg as being a place where you launch stuff into space. Most people just think about Florida, but obviously that's very much not the case. Yeah. So, so, uh, Dave M in the chat just posted a, a TechCrunch article by who I'm going to assume is uh ben's uh evil doppelganger uh daryl etherington and um uh, does the u.s have too many spaceports or too few so i mean there are like you know a ton of small startups you know that are trying to you know come mm -hmm. on i don't think there's enough room in the market for all of them but this will be an interesting article to read moving on to this week in space Light history we have just two winners uh hartvik line and ryan regner if i said that right uh hartvik gets full credit but ryan gets partial credit but uh i like his guess because he got the right answer but for the wrong reason with respect to the clue um but it is a it little was a bit wonderful guess <laughs> it really was <laughs> It's kind of pun-ish, so I think that's kind of cool. <laughs> so, yeah, this week in Space Light History was on the, uh, the 8th of August, 1989, and this was the launch of STS-28. This mission launched on the 8th of August and then it landed on the 13th, so not a very long time in space. Yeah. This was the 8th flight of Columbia, and this was the 4th flight that was actually dedicated to the Department of Defense. So there's been several missions where they're just doing stuff for the Department of Defense. They don't they can't mm -hmm. talk about the specifics, and I kind of forget that there is an aspect uh, to you know the shuttle program that they actually yeah. do things like that because that's not something that you hear about these days with I guess you know like Crew Dragon or like even the regular Dragon spacecraft they don't do that kind of thing but I guess there's no real reason to send a Dragon into orbit to do stuff for the government but uh, when they were developing the shuttle I think that was like a big part of it too was to make sure it could handle kind of what our military wanted to put in space yeah the original conception I believe had uh, the shuttle acting as crew transport for like troops that could land anywhere on a suborbital trajectory I, mm. at least I believe so which is I know I know it sounds crazy but that's actually what one of the original ideas was but that you know wow. that quickly you know, sizzled <laughs> away went. yeah 
yeah, to the roadside. <laughs> yeah, so no one knows exactly what this mission was for, but um, it is actually believed to be for the release into orbit of uh, a satellite called STS-2, which I forget what the STS stands for, but... Uh, satellite Data System. All right, okay, yeah, Satellite Data System 2, which is part of a constellation. It's like one of those satellites that's in um, a high polar orbit. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a Molnia or a Lightning orbit, whichever one. Um, actually, mm-hmm. I, think, I think that those are the same because that means lightning in Russian. What's the other one to get? Uh, right. Tundra. Uh, Tundra. There you go. So if I'm reading the Wikipedia correctly, most of, uh, most of them were on uh, Molnaya orbits, but there, there's actually a mixed bag too. So there's a handful of geosynchronous ones as well. Okay. So they were trying to get it. You know, different kinds of coverage. But they don't know quite what this was for even then, but it is believed that these satellites were to relay essentially spy satellite imagery or information that was coming from satellites that were in low Earth orbit. So yeah, and one interesting aspect of this mission that we had discussed before on, on I think a different mission, not this one, was that this had an 11-pound human skull, like an actual human skull. Um, and this was for <laughs> testing radiation dose distribution. So they had these um, I guess like these little dosimeters and sensors that I believe were also placed in various parts of the shuttle, but there was a whole bunch of them that were baked into this skull, which had um, this uh, type of a plastic matrix. They would actually keep the skull in like a little locker in the mid, you know, in the mid deck, and they would just like let it soak up radiation, and then they would take all the readings. So that was kind of like a little fun side experiment that was used to measure uh, the dose of radiation at different inclinations. Again, that was not the primary mission, but you know, hey, you have that too. Sure. <laughs> so getting close to what the clue is all about. Um, and I have my own speculation and maybe I'm missing something and there is more information, but you know, as I understand it, no one actually knows quite exactly what went wrong, but they have, you know, some information. So there was an RCS thruster uh, that was showing some pretty unusual heat readings and they had to shut it down. They were thinking that it was leaking and that this was due to some unusual heating in the thermal protection system. And this was due to an early transition to turbulent plasma flow. So this is on a reentry and then they, you know, have this weird like RCS problem. So so they had mm. to shut that thruster down. I guess there's a point in the reentry where they do go into turbulent plasma flow because I always think of it as just being pretty laminar, you know? Um, mm. But I guess there's a part where it kind of, you know, has all these little eddies and jetties or whatever they call them, um, <laughs> these little vortexes <laughs> and so forth. And that caused some excessive heat buildup and then that caused a problem with the RCS thruster, so they had to shut it down. They think that the cause was most likely protruding gap filler. So protruding gap filler is something that we have discussed, again, several times. But the thing is, they didn't mention, or at least as as far as I can tell, there was no mention of which RCS actually had the heating problem and which part of the tile on the shuttle surface. So I guess we can talk about the clue itself. And maybe this is kind of where I link the two together and I kind of make my guess here. I don't know if you have any guesses as to what thruster had this issue. But my guess is it's probably in the nose because um, the shuttle pilot, uh, who was Dick Richards, he had mentioned that on reentry around Mach 10, so they're still going pretty fast and they still have all this, you know, like plasma like rushing by. He had mentioned that something had like splattered on the windshield or I guess like the window. I'm not sure what you call it on the shuttle, but you know, the window. Something kind of... I'm sure there's a complicated acronym for its official name. Yeah. um, And that kind of surprised me that something could splatter and then it stayed because they're at Mach 10, but I guess since they're on, you know, the leeward side of that re-entry that maybe it'll stay. But I wouldn't think that something could get on the window and actually stay at such high speeds. But somehow it stuck and it actually survived all the way to landing and he mentions this to the the flight crew operation 
communications directorate. Mm. And they say that they're going to take a look at it. And so they have a technician go out and they, he basically scrapes it off and he puts it in a coffee cup for some reason. And I don't know why you would do that. That doesn't seem like a very you know, professional thing <laughs> OSHA to do. OSHA friendly thing to do. <laughs> this technician puts this stuff in a coffee cup and then he takes it back to the lab. And then uh, some other technician comes along. He does not know this and he pours a cup of coffee into it and then he drinks it. So he drank whatever they scraped off the windshield and or the window. Um, <laughs> and I think as far as I know, that's the end of it. Now, I don't know if they were able to do any analysis, but um, this guy drank whatever was in that cup and we'll never know. <laughs> so, wow. So that's, that's the worst coffee ever then. Okay. And he said that it was the worst coffee ever, which is where that clue comes from. So, mm. yeah, apparently it didn't taste too good. So my guess is that maybe, and maybe if Ben's listening in the chat, which I believe he is, he can tell me if he knows anything about it, but I think that maybe something came off of, you know, a tile along the nose cone, uh, which caused, you know, the nose cone RCS to overheat and then that splattered on the windshield and then that's what the guy drank. I don't know. I don't know if gap filler can melt like that or if it was if 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 it was like something else that was like stuck in there like some kind of a glue or adhesive that was underneath or whatever. I don't know cuz I can't remember all the layers that go in between those tiles. There's actually mm-hmm. two things, right? There's gap filler and then there's something else, I believe. I I could imagine I mean and and with that kind of yeah, that kind of heat I can imagine a bunch of different things potentially. Um but I agree with your nose cone assessment. I mean, I had no idea, but that sounds very plausible and reason. It sounds reasonable to me. At Mach 10, that high in the atmosphere, what else could possibly get on the window? Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing there except for whatever is in front of the window on the shuttle itself. I mean, it can't be bird poop, okay? Like, that's not <laughs> I possible. Don't know, man. So. They've, 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 they've found birds at, like, like the dumbest, like, yeah, not really that high, but, like, I think I think they've seen, like, geese flying at, like, 100,000 feet or something. Wow, really? Like, that doesn't seem physically possible. That doesn't seem possible, yeah. That's well beyond uh, the death zone, right? Like, I, I remember I got I got on a big uh, uh, thing of where I was interested in just how far up and down the biosphere mm-hmm. uh, extends. So, I think now would be a good time to call out what Ryan's guess was. Or rather, I mean, I guess his, his answer was correct, but his, his reasoning was wonderful. Well, what was his answer? So, uh, Ryan had tweeted at us that, um, you know, it was correct, you know, correct date. Uh, the launch of STS-28, but it was commit, and so he wrote, commanded by Brewster Shaw, which is true. The audio clue about brewing coffee suggests his first name. And so, <laughs> Brewster, brewing coffee, worst coffee ever. <laughs> and so I just, that's that punniness that you were referencing. Before. Yeah, it's it's like such a reach that I love it. You know, like, hey, his name is Brewster, so maybe it has to do yeah. with brewing coffee. Like, that's such Solid a... Solid creative answer, yeah. And, and and that's not that's not beyond us, to be fair. You know, I mean, we've come True. up with some pretty... We probably have. ...wonderfully silly... Certainly, <laughs> I've suggested clues that are that tenuous, you know, um, mm-hmm. and then Ben shoots him down, like, no, we're not going to do <laughs> Brewster. <laughs> and he's right. Yeah, so that's a pretty good guess. Um, I can't fault him for that, and he did get the event right. Yes, yeah, so what's our clue for next week? Because I think you came up with this one, and I actually don't know what this is. Yeah, so this could be an absolute disaster. And Ben, feel free to chime in if you uh, are hearing this. But uh, next week in 1962, you are now free to move about the cabin. Okay. Well, I like the clue. Thank you. I'm assuming something to do with a cabin on a capsule, because that's all there was back then, I guess. Or maybe, yeah, <laughs> that's about 
or possibly an airplane, who knows. But uh, if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's move along then to upcoming spaceflight events. Just a couple. Uh, we got a couple launches. Uh, first one is a Falcon 9, and that's launching Starlink 9, and that's also with Black Sky Global. I think we talked about this last week, actually, because this has got to be the same one. Yeah, this had been delayed several times. Yeah, I was going to say, even I, yeah, at least two weeks ago, I remember seeing this one. In fact, it was delayed from June 23rd to June 25th and 26th, oh, wow. scrubbed on July 8th due to poor weather, scrubbed on July 11th due to technical issues, and then, then it was delayed from July 29th and July 31st and the 1st of August. Okay, so wow. that's a lot of delays. And this next attempt is going to be on August the 6th. So, yeah. It's a hurricane. Yeah, yeah. And I have a feeling that might, that might happen. This is, they cannot get this one off the ground. So that's going to be launching, hopefully, at 0533 Universal Time or UTC. Um, and that'll be 1.33 in the morning Eastern Time, so pretty early. Um, but that'll be launching from Launch Complex 39A at the Cape. And, yep, just another Starlink mission with those Black Sky Global Imaging Satellites. Um, so take a look at that if you can stay up late enough. Or if you're in another part of the world, then you can probably you know watch it a little bit more easily. But let's hope that this launch is the is an actual launch. Right. And uh, we potentially might also have another launch on same day, August 6th. Uh, Soyuz taking a uh, GLONASS uh, K uh, navigation satellite to space, uh, launching from Plesetsk. And uh, yeah, that's TBD. So uh, you might want to keep an eye out for that. Uh, don't have a uh, actual launch window yet. Uh, but we do know also uh, something you can't quite watch, but maybe keep an eye out for on social media and elsewhere is OSIRIS-REx will be doing their match point rehearsal on August 11th. And so uh, they're gearing up for their sampling, their touch and go sampling. And so unlike their previous rehearsal where they basically got to what's called the match point, which is where the spacecraft will orbit at the same rotation uh, rate as the, uh, well, basically will hover over the sampling location. This time they are going to uh, actually navigate down to the match point burn altitude, which is only about 82 feet above the surface before backing away. And so, uh, you know, they've already done one rehearsal to get close to the asteroid. Now they're doing another one to get even closer. And uh, this should be uh, the last uh, one of these rehearsals before they do the actual sampling, perhaps in October, in a couple months. Uh, keep an eye out for that. Really cool stuff. And so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. I'll just mention that we are currently watching uh, the Crew Demo 2 coming back. It hasn't splashed down yet, but they are in the midst of a so far successful deorbit burn. So <laughs> that is as up to date as we can be. So things look good so far. But by the time this comes out, that'll all be, you know, academic, as they say. It'll all be history. <laughs> all right, let's deorbit the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. And also, for more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at orbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. See you.